Hello and welcome to OU's Nach Yomi. You can find this year posted at ouradio.org/nach or on my website ericlevy.com under the recording section. Hi, this is Rabbi Eric Levy. I'm pleased to bring to you Kohelet Chapter Five. This chapter is a continuation of the final verse, or picks off where the picks up where the final verse in Chapter Four left off, with a message that is a common trope in biblical religious thought. That is sacrifices are secondary to religious devotion and obedience. And without that devotion and obedience, the sacrifices are essentially rendered worthless. Uh, for instance, after King Saul fails to destroy Amalek, the nation of Amalek, but points out uh, all the wonderful sacrifices he's giving, uh, so Samuel says to him, the prophet says to him, you think the Lord desires the burnt offerings and the peace offerings as much as he wants somebody to listen to his voice? Behold, listening is better than a quality sacrifice. Paying attention is better than the fats of rams. This theme is revisited, in, to just name a few places, in chapter 1 of Isaiah, in chapter 7 of Yirmiyahu, in chapter 40 of Psalms, and of course here. The next passage continues with the appropriate behavior of man before God. Before we continue, however, I should note that Kohelet has changed his mode of speech. He is speaking directly in the second person, either to his students or to his audience. You should do this. You should not, you should not do that. And that is a typical method of wisdom literature and is found in, in sections of Proverbs as well. And we should notice that it, it generally speaks less about you know, general philosophy than it does about specific instruction, which changes the, the mood of the book a little bit. When before God, that is when you're standing before God, don't allow your mouth to be hasty and don't allow your thoughts to bring out words quickly which means don't go blabbing and blabbing about what we'll see in a second, because God is in the heavens and you are on the earth. For this reason, your words should be limited. Now, this is not simply an exhortation to be uh, reticent, to not speak so much, as we will... Uh, first of all, we could tell that because of location, while you're standing in front of God. But we'll also see soon that Kohelet is referring specifically to the making of vows when standing before God, which is the kind of things that people do, whether they're actually at the temple or whether in private supplication, there's a tendency to make vows in order to induce God's mercy or grace. But what's not clear to me in this verse is whether the reason that your words should, should be limited is because God is in the heaven and you are on the earth, which would point to some kind of sense of modesty and caution before making promises that one can't keep, or whether the reason for not making, uh, for not speaking so much is given in the next verse. Because just as dreams come with a myriad of issues, so too the voice of a fool comes with many words. The image here is of a dream that flits sort of nonsensically from idea to idea. Nothing really makes sense. There's no pattern. There's no sense to it. So too, one whose mouth runs off in a stream of consciousness is foolish by definition and will wind up promising things that are ill-conceived uh, to say the least. However, if you do let your mouth get the better of you, kasher tidor neder lelohim al ta'acher l'shalamo ke'in chefetz baksilim et asher tidor shalem. When you swear a vow to God, don't delay in paying it. 
Because ain chefetz with fools. That is, God uh, God does not have chefetz with fools. Whatever you vow, whatever you pay, you know, whatever you vow, you must pay, which means you should complete the vow. Ain chefetz means not only that God has no desires for fools who vow and then renege on their, on their vows, but it returns to that technical sense of the word, which we've seen, which means God finds no appropriate time to compensate the fool. That is, he won't come to his defense uh, in the face of oppression or in the face of troubles. In fact, while it suggests, It is better that you not make a vow than you make a vow and then don't complete the vow. Um, the rabbis, during rabbinic times, they really came out against making vows, probably because of the situation that is being hinted at by Kohelet, which is that people stop taking their vows so seriously. They stop paying them up. Um, obviously, once upon a time, um, the reason why there is a whole legal system of vows in the Torah is because making a vows was critical. It was important, especially after one received assistance or salvation from God. This is quite obvious from the formal structure of Psalms of Lament and Psalms of Thanksgiving. Note also the vow of Jonah after being saved from drowning. Um, vows are an important part of uh, the religious experience, or were part of the uh, important part of the religious experience. But when people stop taking it so seriously, so Kohelet introduced a different priority, uh, which would ultimately lead to the overall abandonment of uh, abandonment of vowing um, in rabbinic times. For Kohelet, it's just you better not vowing than vowing and not paying up. For in rabbinic times, it's you better not taking any vows at all. And we continue on with the chapter. Don't allow your mouth to cause your flesh to sin, or more likely to be to be called to task and to receive a fleshy physical punishment for the sin of, of failing to complete a vow. Rashi says that the flesh is a metaphor for the offspring, as if somehow they will pay the price. <clears throat> for your vows that aren't kept. But getting back to the verse, and don't say before the messenger, the malach, that it was an accident. That is, the vow came out accidentally. Why should God be angered over your voice and destroy the work of your hands? The messenger here seems to be some heavenly creature that acts as a representative for God when one is being judged. This may be similar to the idea in the book of Eov called the Melitz, uh, some kind of intermediary or translator. The Greek translation, actually, the Septuagint, replaces the word malach with theu, which means it doesn't like to use the word angel. It goes with God himself. That is, you shouldn't say to God that you made a mistake. So maybe the Greek translators didn't like the idea of putting some metaphysical buffer zone between man and God during the time of judgment. Uh, Rashi avoids the whole problem, interestingly enough, by saying that these vows are specifically talking about charitable donations, and the malach is a human flesh and blood gabai, a charity collector who comes to your door to remind you that you owe what you promised uh, during that uh, Simchat Torah bidding war, and uh, you better not say that it was an accident. All right, I'm, I'm paraphrasing Rashi quite a bit, but that's his main point. Uh, Eov then sums up this section with the verse that is quite difficult, because it has no predicate, but we'll throw in a predicate. So the sense seems to be internalize the fear of God to avoid the dream-like vanities of lagoria. Lagoria means the incessant or compulsive uh, talkativeness, uh, wearisome volubility that will get somebody into trouble.
Verse 7 returns to the idea of the injustice and oppression that one sees, which we saw in the previous chapter, which we which dealt with in the previous chapter. Im oshek rash vegezel mishpat vatzedek tireb ba'medina al titmah ala chifetz ki gavoah me'al gavoah shomer u'gvohim alehem. If you see oppression of the poor and plundering of righteous justice in the Medina, Medina probably means in public, which means that people are, are the court systems are corrupt in public. Uh, that's based on the Arabic word for Medina, which doesn't mean country, but it means a big bustling city. Don't be shocked over the chayfets, which means don't be shocked because of God's exact, because God's exacting or meeting out of consequences and punishments doesn't happen instantaneously. Don't be shocked because there is a God, guard, there is a shomer who is higher than the other, perhaps meaning that there are forces greater than humans that are in charge of the social justice, and there are those that are higher than them. The sense is a system of judges. Apparently he's referring to supernatural ones, whether he means it literally as the Ebenezer hints to, or whether it means it metaphorically. The bottom line is, God is above all of them. And and what's important here is I don't think that Kohelet is suggesting that people sit around and do nothing because they figure, oh, God will take care of it. God really wants them punished, so God will take care of it. I don't have to get involved. No, he told us that in the, in the previous chapter that that's not what he wanted. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Man must act rather than throwing up his hands in despair and saying, well, if God doesn't have chayfetz, so why should I? So he says, that's not your business, that's God's business. Your business is to do what you need to do. Unfortunately, Kohelet adds a conclusion in the next verse to that idea, but the verse is is, is so difficult, really a challenge to translate, but we'll give it a shot. And the prophets of the land are his, meaning perhaps God's, like a king is to the cultivated fields. And the question is, what does this have to do with uh, justice in, in that one sees in the courts, or injustice? So perhaps this means that God is the master, the final arbiter of everything that happens in his fields, that is, in the world. So he will decide when injustice and oppression are, are, are resolved, and that's not your problem, that's God's problem. Rashi thinks that this verse actually is a historical metaphor, a historical reference, uh, to the damage done to the Sadeh by the destruction of Jerusalem. That is, Sadeh is a, a metaphor for destroyed Jerusalem, as it says in Yirmiyahu, in, 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 in the book of Jeremiah, Tzion Sadeh Techaresh, Zion will be plowed up like a field. Uh, so what uh, Rashi says, this is saying is, don't worry, God will take care of his country eventually, even though it has been destroyed and turned into a field. On the other hand, Ebenezer says that this is not actually a continuation, but a contrast with what he had said about justice, which means having established that God is over everything, the best per- thing that a person could do is not worry about all of these injustices, but to make whatever profit he can by keeping his eye on the work of the fields, and even a king should behave that way. So says Ebenezer. Now, in verse 9, the metaphor of a king working his fields allows Kohelet to segue into the consequences of amassing wealth, and Kohelet will now focus on this new issue. Ohev kesef lo yisba kesef, umi ohev behamon lo One who loves money or silver will never be satisfied by money, and he who loves abundance will never be satisfied with his harvest. 
This too, meaning the love of money and riches, is absurd. It has no substance. That it is not the fact that he is not satisfied, which is absurd. That's obvious. It's the fact that he tries to be satisfied with it. It's like chasing the wind. It's hevel. It, that, that's why it's so absurd. Why? Because birvota tovar as the wealth, or as this guy's wealth, is produce proliferates, so too the people who eat it proliferate as well. And what benefit then is it to the master other than his ability to see it? Meaning, the benefit can't be tasted since everybody eats all of his products. All he gets is the dubious pleasure of counting his profits and then watching other people, his servants, the members of his house, his followers, his carriers on, all of them eat it. Now, in contrast to this wealthy person, the sleep of a worker, even though he may eat a bit more or a bit less, because in contrast, the rich man's attempt to achieve satisfaction prevents him from sleeping at all. The idea is being that an employer employer, a head of a company, a head of a farm, a head of a business may have its rewards. But there's also the uh, inherent stress. Um, and if taken to the extreme, it's probably better off to be a poor worker who manages to get a good night's sleep every night rather than to be this guy who has to worry about every last piece of his business who never gets a good night's sleep. Um, Rashi, again, offers another inter- interpretation. He says that shnat, well, he gives this interpretation and he offers a second interpretation. He says the word shnat is short, not short for shena, to sleep, but short for shana, a year, which means the year of the servant who serves God is sweet, even though sometimes he lives a little bit longer, but sometimes a little bit shorter, but at least he he had a sweet life while he was alive. And now in verse 12, we move on to an even more extreme uh, evil or misfortune uh, than just the lack of sleep that an owner undergoes while fretting over the wealth that he retains. There is a sick evil that is a really unfortunate thing, but not necessarily a sin, that I have witnessed Tachat Hashamish in man's life, and what is it? When wealth is being guarded for him to his detriment, which means I think that it was not guarded well at all. For example, such an example is that he invested all of his money in a Ponzi scheme. There was some event that went bad, and it doesn't have to be like a Ponzi scheme where somebody's actually sinning against that guy. It could be just that, I don't know, his ship didn't come in. He sent out a ship with all of his wealth, and it went down in a storm. The whole Ben, and he sired a son, but he has nothing to bequeath that son. He has nothing in his hands. So he says that is a really bad thing because this guy worked hard and he would be happy to have to worry over his wealth. But now he has to worry about the fact that he lost all of his money in the stock market. Uh, this idea of having lost everything, which is expressed with the word ve'en biado mi'uma, he has nothing in his hands, causes Kohelet to think more generally about man's fate uh, when it comes to um, uh, man's possessions. Kasher yatsami betemi mo arom yashuv and here's the linking words. There's the words. So, translating, just as a person exits his mother's womb naked, 
That is, that's how he enters the world. That's the way he returns. He returns to that state when he leaves the world, exactly as he entered. Indeed, he carries nothing that he can have taken in his hands for all of his toil, which means eventually you die and everything is gone. You come out of the world with nothing, you come into the world with nothing, and you go out of the world with nothing. And that is a sick misfortune. Since if it's true that one comes in, so does one go out, then what is the advantage that he should toil for the wind, meaning for something that inevitably disappears when it's over? Moreover, all the days that he eats in darkness, that is, even if you want to say that at least during his life, he got to appreciate the good things he worked for, the bottom line is life is pretty tough. He eats in darkness with much agitation, with sickness and with anger, that is, human life can be pretty tough. So if you can't take it with you, and you can't enjoy it while you're here, then what's the point? Isn't it absurd to start any effort whatsoever? So Kehelet, having sort of cornered himself again by pondering the misfortune of this guy who lost everything in a bad business deal, and who had nothing to leave his child, he reiterates, he has nowhere to go but to reiterate his previous philosophy, which seems to now help him here as well. And behold, that's what I saw, meaning that's what I concluded is good. It is good to eat and to drink and to appreciate the good in all of one's work that one does, in the lifetime that he has, which in the days that are limited in number, they're finite, which God has given him, because that is his portion of his life. So again, he returns to the idea that life may be miserable, you don't get to take it with you, and therefore the conclusion is, you should work and work and appreciate the things that you do. Moreover, every person who God has not only given wealth and property to, but has also given the power to eat from the fruits of his labor, and who can bear the weight of his portion, which means he can stand up to life even though it's a little bit difficult, and who God allows to take pleasure in his hard work, all of this is a gift from God, which means if it happens to you, appreciate it. Again, I think Coelho is not just talking about the product, appreciating the product of his labor. The gift is also a kind of a positive psychological state of mind, that it's a gift if you could be in a situation and allow yourself to appreciate the things that you have. God's gift is allowing people to appreciate whatever they have if they choose to do so, like the lowly worker that we saw before, who doesn't eat that much, but he appreciates his good night's sleep and his, le- and you know what, he, he, he preaches, he appreciates his less than a million dollar meals. Because he will not for long remember the days of his own life. And because of that, which means because time runs out for everyone, and no one can remember everything one accomplished in life by the time one gets to the end of it, God provides him with simchat libo, a psychological or an intellectual personal satisfaction. Now, you can ask, but not everybody who toils manages to earn any profit at all. So how can God provide that person with the satisfaction of appreciating a job well done? Well, that's definitely a problem that Kohelet might just ponder in the next chapter, chapter 6.